Hi, I'm John Montagna. Welcome to Breaking It Down, a music podcast for Culture Sonar. On each episode, my buddy Jeff Gans and I will take a comprehensive look at the greatest music and musicians of our times and explore what makes these artists and their works so important. Jeff and I are both musicians, but we've never stopped being fans. We love this stuff, and we figure you will too. We're calling this episode Yesterday and Today, Old Favorites with New Ears. Jeff and I wanted to find out if some of the music we loved the most when we were younger would hold up under the scrutiny of our more mature, professional sensibilities. It was an exciting and gratifying exercise that led to the conversation you're about to hear. So here's your hosts, Jeff Gans and John Montagna. All right, we're back. Hi, uh, everybody. By the way, before I forget, we got our first email. Really? Yeah. Breaking it down at culturesonar.com. Our intrepid producer, Al, set up a, an email account for us for people to respond to the show. And we got, and, and it's, they get forwarded to my email address. Excellent. And I was like, look at this. We got an email. It was spam. But <laughs> it was, the email address works is the point I'm trying to make. Oh, so excellent. Anything you hear that you want to comment on, uh, please send it to breakingitdown at culturesonar.com. And we can talk about what we're talking about. We are talking about yesterday's favorites with today's ears. I was reading an article recently about the human brain during adolescence and how, and I'm, I'm, I'm really being incredibly vague uh, and, and, and overgeneralizing. I'm sure someone out there knows more, but I guess during that period of your life and your growth and your uh, development, the brain is sending out all sorts of like, you know, age 13, 14, 15, the brain is sending out a whole new set of chemicals and enzymes and hormones and whatever it is that you're taking in during that period of your life, you are always going to have a positive association with it. Okay. But also it, does it make sense that you're also dealing at that point when you're listening to music, the socialization aspect of it and wanting to belong. Oh, without a doubt. I like this. Oh, wow. So do I. Let's go see him. Maybe our father will drive us. He doesn't want us to use the subway or some stuff like that. And it becomes less about, you know, the technical stuff that we now know about because when we're listening well, to these things... Well, it's not even a part of the equation yet. You don't know any technical stuff yet. Well, you might if you're even studying if you an do, instrument. Even if you do, you still don't know. that There's a lot of stuff that you don't know yet because you're not, unless you're some prodigy. Right, which is possible. Right, but I, I would say for the other 98% of us, <laughs> you know, it's, it's more about just taking it in at face value. Our mutual friend, Mick Gaffney, yes. one, of the, one of the finest guitar players on the planet, told me this years ago because he was a pre-med student. I never knew that. Yeah. He didn't start playing the guitar till he was like 21 or something. Dr. Like Gaffney. I could be getting this wrong and I apologize, Mick, but in any case, he told me this years ago. He says, you got to get them when they're young. You got to make music for teenagers because you'll, you'll have a fan for life. And so we... But also the way the music is marketed. 
Well, of to course. people. You know, the music back then and marketing to teenagers or adolescents or right. anybody else, it's always been with another motive of getting people to buy the records. Well, you know, yes. the posters on the wall and, you know, everything, for, you know, 16 magazine yes. vibe, you know? And that's fairly new. I found this out on my trip to Liverpool uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that in England, anyway, it was, it was during my visit to the John Lennon, John Lennon's childhood home. Uh, the guy was explaining that, like, after World War II, England changed the law to where you stayed in school another year uh, until you were 15, okay. I guess. I guess up until that point, when you were 14, you entered the workforce. You started working in a coal mine or the or whatever, you know, and... He says, that change, suddenly we had something in England that we'd never had before, the teenager. Right. And also, don't forget, though, in yeah. the 40s, yeah. you know, what you might want to call fans, groupies, were the Bobby Soxers. Totally. You know, with Sinatra but when that he was, was in again, the Pied Pipers. Again, brand new. The social phenomenon of teenager. You know, teenagers didn't have a voice. You were a child, and then you were an adult, and that was it. This idea, this this leisure class of kids with disposable income was something new. And then you add rock and roll to the mix, you know, music that spoke directly to teenagers, you know, blah, blah, blah. There are guys who study that stuff way more deeply Socialists. than I have. I'm, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, those folks. Sociologists. Sociologists. That's right. Socialism is <laughs> Nice Freudian different. slip there, huh? Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but in any case, when you have the adults reviewing the music for teenagers, like when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan and, you know, the... Uh, yeah, the same guy that was reviewing Traviata at the Met was reviewing the Beatles. The most vulgar, you know, it's a, they're always trashing the music for teenagers. But, you know... And you and doing it very formally, like Mr. Lennon and Mr. McCartney. Yes, right. Yeah. The, 40, <laughs> the 40 and 50-year-olds reviewing the music of teenagers always say the same thing about how terrible the music is. But you know what? That reminds me of a very famous Frank Zappa interview right. where he's talking about, you know, A&R guys at record companies. Right. And he was talking about, you know, bringing young hip guys right. in as opposed to like, you know, the older the dudes. Old guys. Zappa, I've seen that interview. I love it. Exactly. I don't know. Put it out there. See what happens. Right. So Zappa is basically saying that you were better off with We're the older off, guys. Better off with the guys with the gray hair and the cigars. Exactly. Going, I don't know. What do I know? Put it out there. Exactly. Okay. Before it and became restrictive. And, and there's pros and cons to that. But in any case, so we thought it would be interesting now that we are professionals, we're adults, and we know too much. What happens when we go back to the stuff that we have the sentimental attachment to from listening to it when we were teenagers? And look, you and I have both done enough gigs with legacy artists to understand how nostalgia works. We've had enough people come up to us with tears in their eyes going, you know, I remember listening to that song when I was 13. Thank you so much. So, I thought it would be interesting, or we thought it would be interesting, if we went back and looked at this music uh, and did what we like to call the forensic analysis as adults, as professional musicians, rather than just taking it in at face value. But being adults also having the way we felt as adolescents still in the picture. But as part yes. of the but as part of the equation, not the defining thing as you would imply before. Right. Because there have been times where I'll go and dig up 
some single that I haven't heard since 1982 that in my memory is like pop music perfection. I haven't heard it in years and years and I'll download it and I'll listen to it with headphones and I'll go, oh my God, the, the, the rhythm section is totally out of place. There's out of tune stuff. This is a, this is a terrible song. That guy sped up during the fill, you know, and I won't name names, but like a lot of times your your rosy memories of stuff from your youth don't always hold up. But also keep in mind- the scrutiny of adulthood and professionalism. But, right. But keep in mind that when you were a kid and listening to these things, there was no YouTube. Mm-hmm. There was the content, you know, to corroborate it and be able to download- Take one, take two, take three, take That's fifty. Right. You you couldn't find these you things back then. And, and, you were basically you had the record or the CD at best. Well, you heard it on the radio. Exactly. In my day, you heard it in the. In my day, you heard it in the radio. <laughs> the media, you know, the medium was the message. The, my parents. I don't know about your parents. McLuhan. There were, yes, uh, but like, the radio was always on in the car. Yep. Uh, my mother would take us shopping, and we'd be in you know. Rock Bottom in Canarsie or Joyce Leslie or whatever. And there was always a radio playing. So like I never owned a copy of I Will Survive, but I knew it because it was on the radio 18 times a freaking day. Exactly. like It's what I like you know? to uh, refer to as being in your DNA because of the yeah. relentless exposure. And it was in, it just in the, the, the environment. You go into the supermarket, the radio's on. Exactly. So you would hear these songs just wafting in like in the atmosphere. Um, but the actual recordings, I mean, they were because they were trying to be hipper than Muzak. Right. But it, it was also it was the radio, Z100 and, or whatever. Um, AM radio. Uh, I remember I had a um, a Star Wars AM radio. It looked like a big, like a headset that you would wear. Like a, It was like a Star Wars kind of like headset with a little fake mic. But it was just an AM radio. And I can, I remember listening to 77 WABC, listening to Rise by Herb Alpert. One of the coolest things that I have that I will never get rid of yeah. is my Pizza Hut AM radio. See, I, just won't do it. Won't awesome. get rid of it. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. So, Complete with Pizza Hut headphones. There you go. So I thought it would be interesting. I shouldn't say I. We. No, you. Thought it would be, was it my idea? Well, yeah. I don't even remember. Okay. Will our favorites from adolescence hold up to present day adult professional scrutiny? And I thought this could be dangerous because I don't want to ruin anything. You know what I mean? But I don't think you will. I thought it will. Well, the the spoiler here is that like the, the, the two selections I took out, I think I have only enhanced my enjoyment of uh, one a little bit more than the other. And I'm I'm hoping maybe you did too. So I want to start with you, Jeff. We discussed uh, the two titles that you mentioned. You I were, may you change one do. of them. Oh, fine. Okay. So which album are we talking All about? All right. Here? Let's start with, uh, I'll work up to the one that has resonated for me. And I've actually been revisiting it frequently. And what I mean by frequently is basically all the time. Is <laughs> okay. We're only in it for the money by the Mothers of Invention. Oh, fantastic. All right. so let's, And this is a perfect is, place to start. It's a great let's, start because I know that record as well. Uh, I have my memory of when I found it for the first time. Uh, when and how and where and with whom did you hear this record for the first time? Well, it came out in 68. 
It was the third Mothers of Invention album okay. that I'm aware of. I think Freak Out, then Absolutely Free, and then this record came out. Yeah. And it was the first one I'd heard. And I was either at summer camp or I was in school, in junior high school, okay. when I heard it. All right. And um, So you're 14? I'm 13. Yes, 14? I'm 14. I'm 14. Okay. All right. And I heard it, and it captivated me. Where did you hear it? Somebody give you a copy? Well, you bought a copy. It was lying I must around. have. Heard, it was certainly not being played on the radio, right? So somebody, somebody had it. <laughs> okay, but Some, you know what? It could have been played on the radio at that time because you know you had very, um, you know, groundbreaking DJs like Roscoe on WNEWFM, Allison Steele, Scott Muni. I mean, these were my guys back in the day. Where, where as, they early, actually, as early as that? Yeah, they started. Okay. Well, the first progressive rock station in New York was WORFM. Got it. Okay. And it lasted the for a little that, while. Like it, and all those DJs went over to um, WNEW after yeah. that time. Sure. And we're everybody was like, oh, AM radio sucks. Well, it didn't really suck, but we thought it sucked. And in retrospect, of course, it doesn't suck. Right. You know, but but, but looking for FM something radio was the first I heard of it. Okay. And people were talking about, you know, profanity issues. Well, compared to what's going on right now, <laughs> there's uh, right. nothing profane and, and risque know. on there, especially right. after looking at, you know, old interviews with Frank Zappa and PMRC and everything sure. else that people are talking about. Sure. So, um that's how I first heard it. And I heard it as the whole thing. Right. And the first thing- You kind of have ca- to hear that album as the whole thing. Right. So basically, the way it hit me first was as, as Musical Mad Magazine. Mmm. Not really about the music. And it's kind of like- music, I sa- The music is a vehicle for social commentary. Absolutely. That's how satire. I heard it. That's how I heard it first. Right. As that. What was going on at that time was I remember I was a guitar player back then. I was right. getting coming into my own as a rock and roll guitar player when I was 14. Okay. And I, I, you know, like, let's play some Hendrix. Let's play some Cream. Oh, let's play some Zappa. And the guy who I was playing with said, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, nobody's, you, you, let's right. play some Zappa. And basically That's what he funny. was implying is you don't get it, dude. If you want to cover Mothers of Invention in a band, you have no idea what they're talking about. Huh. So I remember that very vividly. Because it's like out of your league, like nobody can, like that stuff is so difficult that you can't play it or or no one's going to want to listen to this stuff. It was more like the the overall feeling was you have no right to cover this. Interesting. You know, so it was it's like kind of sacred like you, already. It was sacred already because this this guy felt he was it was sacred already, and you know what? He was right. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I I mean, you know, it's the old definition of what's uh, what's the definition of a gentleman? Uh, Somebody who knows how to play the accordion but doesn't. Doesn't right right right. So uh, so so the thing is, the Zappa things mean more to me now because I permit it to be it on its own. Right. Instead of now, instead of like, oh, look at me. I'm a guitar player. Everybody look at me. I'm going to play Zappa music. Right. I'm going to play Purple Haze. Like, I'm going to play that, Sunshine of like Your it's Love. A, it's a little and looking at it, Right. And looking at it and oversimplifying it in the context of these other things, even though I liked it, and it reached me on that level. You Got know it. what I mean? Got it. So I've been listening to this record all the time. 
And I mean, I put it away for a few months. I just listened to it coming, going to and coming home from Wisconsin okay. this past weekend. Try to describe this record to people that might not know it. Oh, boy. Thanks a lot. How do you? Uh, I why mean, don't you help me with this? Because I don't know if I can. We're talking about. You know, well, for, okay, fine. So he made an attempt. Let me see if I could. He made an attempt to start writing like songs. Like actual like songs, three minute songs. I don't think so. I think that had already started on Freak Out. Okay, and and absolutely free with okay. you know brown shoes. Right, and I'm losing status at the high school. This was like a through composed thing right. that had everything in it from John Cage to pop music to doo wop. Right, and the way it was edited and mixed was it, you know, and it was side one and side two because I had the LP of course exactly. And you know, and as a matter of fact, our friend way. Adam Snyder, who we've mentioned. Before, yeah. we still reference the beginning of side two, nasal retentive calliope music. Oh, yeah. We still do that. Boop, boop, boop. You know, I think I've done that with him. Of course you have. And, you know, we'll be playing like, you know, Mustang bow. Sally on a gig and one of us will go boo, boo, and he'll oh, play nice. and he'll do the surf drum nice. stuff. It's brilliant. So it's in the DNA. And there's but- bits of dialogue. There's sound effects, the sound collage, and maybe stuff. it's the first concept album. Maybe you know what I mean. Remember well, when Pepper we talked was, about Pepper concept was, albums? Yes, Pepper came before it, and oh, Pepper, the, thank the you. Who's, the Who Sellout came before right. it. You'll know, Pepper. This, thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you. The album cover it's, is a direct satire of Sgt. Pepper's. Yes, yes, and that was what I noticed actually. My uncle had this, and I and I saw the album cover, and I spotted the Pepper uh, parody. Immediately, of course you did. Immediately, <laughs> you and in particular was, did. And and he was like, "You want to borrow it?" I said, "Yeah, sure." Were you already like Mr. Beatles by the time this? I thing was came Mr. Out? Beatles when I was three. That's what I thought. So okay. yeah, and I was like, I was probably thirteen, not yet in high school. I knew who Frank Zappa was. Uh, my stepfather had the Apostrophe album, so I knew "Don't Eat the Yellow Snow." It was the eighties. Valley Girl had already happened, right? Um, so and I knew that he had this other you know, previous Mothers of Invention, early stuff. So I was like, oh, look at this album cover spoofing Sgt. Pepper. And I put it on and it starts with it. Uh, uh, are you hung up? And I said, what the fuck And keep this? in mind, this is all before digital, everybody. Yeah. So this, this is all, all done. The producer was Tom Wilson, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He had done everybody yep. from Bob Dylan to, yes. to this one, to that one. Right. It was on the bizarre label was which it, was, was it, being distributed by verve, by verve records at that time moon zappa said in an interview once that one of her first words was warp because she was a baby she was like an infant a toddler while her father was editing tape oh. and so he'd be there with like you know warp, like moving the yeah, wheels yeah, yeah, around yeah, over the heads and she would she'd be walking around the room in a diaper and one of the first words she learned how to say was warp oh my god because well, the tape 
going the, back and depending forth. on the age of our audience, <laughs> they know exactly what we're talking about. I think people you know, know. going it's frontwards reels. and backwards over tape to find edit points and totally. using and you, and I did it. I mean, I had my we little, did, sure. I had my four track, I had my eight track, and yeah. I was pretty good with the uh, with the grease pencil and the right. tape. So there's a lot of that, and it's very skillful, and it sounds great. It's very compelling, but there's also uh, some heavy social commentary. This is now the '60s and the youth and riots and um, uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that I, I mean, that I'm glossing over very well, quickly. No, I mean, basically law enforcement first came to the uh, consciousness of rock America because of Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth. Totally. Which was the um, comment on the Sunset Strip riots. That's so that's right. when people started like looking at it. Right. And and young people running away from home. There's a There's like a... Young people speaking their minds, getting so much resistance from behind is the lyric. Well, I'm so, I'm talking about we're only in it for the money. There's, okay. like a, there's like a minute or two minute thing of like a phone call with like, your mother is so worried about you. Yeah. Yep. Please come home or whatever. Right. And then they're right. If he doesn't get you, if he didn't get you in Laurel Canyon, he won't get you here. Right. I mean, all this just amazing right. inside stuff that, that I had no up, idea what they were talking right. about and, and, when I was and, 14. And, and this voice going, tomorrow I will erase all the Frank Zappa masters. Blank, blank. Empty, empty, and the day after that, and the day after that, he's in the control room now, listening to everything. You know who that is, right? But I really don't care. No, who is it? Lou Reed. Come on. You didn't know that? No. You of all people? There's a lot of stuff I don't know. I I, I fess up. Who, you know who, God, it's God, I see God. Is that Clapton? That's Clapton. Okay. Yeah. So, because they credit him (laughs) as a period. Oh, my God. That I did know. Right, I did not. So the gap between 14-year-old Jeff hearing this record and, um, you know, 39-year-old Jeff. Nah, uh, uh, should we tell people? I don't mind. You Well, you've said it on the show before. You're I six, turned 65 last week. Right on, right on. Thank you. You wear it well. It's the new 64. Exactly. Um, so how does it hold up today? Now that you've done all that you've done, you go back to this thing that blew your mind when you were a teenager. It's better. Okay. It's better okay. for every reason you can think of. Okay. Not only do I understand what they're talking about a little bit better, well, but musically, it is, it just keeps blowing my mind. Yeah. I mean, what I had put up on the uh, on the book of face was that every time I listen to it, I learn something new, and yeah. that does not stop. I listen to this first of all. It's also bass player to bass player. Yeah. Um, I have now become and am not the least bit shy about talking about how great Roy Estrada, mm. the bass player, was. Okay. And in that context, have to mention the, the two drummers, Billy Mundy and Jimmy Carl Black, yes. for some brilliant, brilliant, un, brilliant and underappreciated work. You have to be, Those songs are pretty ridiculous. And I'm getting the validation from a lot of um Ridiculous people. in a good way, by the way. It is ridiculous in a good way, right. That's, that's know, the way I usually use it. Odd time signature stuff. But one of the coolest things was when I weighed in it, weighed in on, on Facebook, one of the comments I got about it, uh, who knew uh, Jimmy Carl Black very well and corroborated what I said and felt the same way, was one of the greatest bass players in the world, Jim Fielder, mm. weighed in on it. Yeah. And boy, did that make me feel good. Sure, you sure. Know? Jim Fielder from uh, Buffalo Springfield, Zappa, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Right, right. You know, I mean, yeah. ju- and recently for, well, recently for 40 years, Neil Sedaka. Oh, Okay. Interesting. Which is when I met him. I met him in 1982. Uh, I was in Las Vegas with the Village people. He was there with Neil Sedaka right. and could was delightful gentleman. 
you know what you want to hear another neil sedaka tentacle and then we'll get into my one of my records sure. was a guitar player who was kind of down on his luck for a little while and it was the gig with Neil Sedaka that got him back on his feet again. Wouldn't be Hadley Hawkinsmith, would Andy it? Andy Summers. Come on. Andy Summers had already been through the new animals. Oh, so was this he the been, bad the he, bad blood era when he was in England? Soft machine. Uh yeah, he comes back to England. No gig. Doesn't even own an amp. And he starts going to the clubs to hang out and hustle. He meets a guy who introduces him to a guy. He hands a phone number to a guy that calls him and he says, Neil Sedaka is auditioning guitar players. He goes in, meets Neil Sedaka, nails the audition. And he says, all right, when can you start this and that? And he says, could I get a $300 advance so I can buy an amp? And Sedaka whips out his checkbook, writes him a check on the spot, advances him some bread so he can buy a friggin' amp. Perfect. And, and he toured right, with Neil Sedaka for like six months, or right? A year and he or was in England at that time. All mm-hmm. those records, like right, "Laughter right. in the Rain," which is considered the comeback, that's he had right. written "Love Will Keep Us Together" at that time. That's right. And "Bad Blood," the duet with Elton John. Right. So yeah, Andy Summers was was did that gig for not a long time, but it was it was like it got him back on his feet. So I that love he, it. So that he and his girlfriend could pay the fucking rent again. Excuse I love my it. French. I love it. So yeah, don't say rent in front of the KIDS. I know. <laughs> All right, so I got two albums here. Um, What are those? Okay. Albums. I know, right? Um, Oh, those look like paintings. Yes, I know, right? (laughs) Well, and I brought this because I didn't want to bring the CD, and just because it just to kind of jog my memory a little bit here. 1986, I was a freshman at Music and Art High School. I had just gotten accepted to Music and Art. And in those days, Manhattan was still the center of the universe. Brooklyn was like another another planet and when i got accepted to laguardia it was i was like a kid making a jailbreak i couldn't wait to start hanging out in manhattan you know going to canal jean and tower records and all that kind of stuff so 2001 odyssey wasn't for you huh no when saturday night fever came out i was i was in kindergarten so, so it wasn't for you didn't it was not for me it didn't make <laughs> it wasn't it, for you when you were five even though the music was ubiquitous right um no that was not my no. So so people go, oh, you're from Brooklyn. You must have gone to Lamore all the time. No. Right. So Monty Rock was not your guy. I don't even know who that is. So well, he, the DJ. <laughs> but anyway. Okay. So I don't remember why I bought the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. I didn't see the movie for like at least 10 years after it came out. Maybe because I'd heard the title track on the radio. Maybe I'd seen the ad on TV for the movie, but I bought this album at Tower Records on West 4th Street. Something about it, I, I, I don't know why I would have, because I, again, I didn't see the movie, but the cover, it's a black and white photo, but Molly Ringwald's blouse is tinted pink. Pre-Photoshop, everybody. Totally. So it, and, and I just, you know, if you remember the 80s, everything was, there was a lot of like black and white, photos that were tinted yes different colors may i see it please please do thank you do me a favor and take out the disc inside and you'll recognize and have a look at the label that's on the disc the familiar the familiar a&m records logo fading into pink yes very nice track two on side one is a song called left off center by suzanne vega 
which features our mutual friend Mike Viseglia on bass. Very good. Joe Jackson on piano on that track. When I went to Mike's apartment to interview him for my previous podcast, he had a platinum. He's got he's got some of his platinum albums there on the wall, and he's got the platinum album for this record. With the I recognize the faded into pink A and M label right away. Oh my God! Look so, who's on this. Baluey Sum is on this. I don't know. I didn't, see. I didn't know who that was. Well, my friend Alan Childs, who we've referenced in several of our podcasts, played mm. with him. Okay. As did, if I'm not mistaken, guitar prodigy Larry right. Mitchell. Right. Played with this guy. Okay. And I think so, Carmen Rojas is. Well. Okay. So I played this record a lot. Okay. Freshman year. And I took it all in at face value, uh, both sides of it. Again, we're dealing with an LP, so it's two sides. And because you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten songs, all from different artists. It's what you would call a mixtape or a playlist today. You know, that got me thinking about soundtrack albums. How this is a thing that, like, these days, a movie comes out, you would just get, you know, follow the link to the Spotify playlist that we've assembled. You know, here, you've got a film producer, music supervisor, getting clearances from all these different record labels to get these songs put together on a soundtrack album. Which also means buy your popcorn and your Sprite, sit down and shut up. Because that's what it was. Of I course. mean, there was no of Netflix back well, then. Well, I'm not saying that they were all, that the, the, the motivations were totally uh, magnanimous. But, but there's also, a, you know, there was also community in the theaters. I mean, you know, right. you know, movies like this had the kind of following that the Rocky Horror Picture Show had. Totally. I mean, it just... It struck me like what a time capsule this thing is. And I'll read you what John Hughes writes on the back cover here. The music in Pretty in Pink was not an afterthought. The tracks on this album and in this film are there because Howie Deutsch and I believe in the artists, respect the artists, and are proud to be in league with them. Endless thanks to them all and to David Anderl, the best friend and ally anyone venturing into the blur of film music could ever have. So the music was not an afterthought. That struck me. There was some, there was a unifying as as different as these as these tracks are from each other, and these artists are. You've got orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Suzanne Vega, Jesse Johnson, on a track called "Get to Know You," which you could be forgiven for thinking that this was Prince. I mean, everything about this track is screen screen is not right. Yet. And if I think the second Prince album had come out by this time, the one that everybody knew, this a is, lot of Prince. This is the era of Purple Rain. This is oh yeah, well after Purple Rain, but like but Purple Rain lasted forever in people's heads. That's so right. People were doing things like this, and you know, I at mean, that time, the, the track is. I mean, it's like I've been in love with him such a long time. I don't know the words. You would be forgiven for thinking that that was Prince. There's a track called Do What You Do by NXS, which is a What You Need clone. Okay. But it's killing. Echo and the Bunnymen are on here Echo and the Bunnymen are on here. I didn't know Echo and the Bunnymen or New Order. I didn't know all that. But but it was great to have like one song from each of these guys. And the tune we discussed, the cover of the Nick Kershaw tune. (laughs) 
you know, I wanted to point out If You Leave by OMD. You talk about hearing it as an adult. Again, I took this entire package in at face value because that's what you do when you're a teenager. You're not forensically analyzing Which stuff. is what we're only in it for the money is to me too. You take the whole thing in because it's presented that way. You don't question it and go like, what the hell is this? Okay, so I was listening to, I listened to the album all the way through again recently going like, let me pick this thing apart. Knowing I'm, I'm running the risk of ruining my memories, but I have a feeling that this will hold up. If you leave moves through like a lot of key signatures, right? Okay. It's, it starts with a, it's, it starts, there's an intro, there's a one, six, four, five in F, right? F to D minor to B flat to C, and then it goes to D. Verse one, one six four five. If you leave, don't leave now. Don't leave now. Please don't take me all away. Promise me. I mean, one six four five used all the time. We got, we gotta make it last. Goes to the chorus to D. Touch you once. Okay, the relationship between F and D, uh, D minor would be the relative minor of right. F. But it's going to D major. Right. Right. So it's like the major six. Okay. Touch you once, touch you twice, won't let go at any price. One, four, five, four. Well, no harm, no foul. It's great. Yeah, exactly. So now we get to someday, we, we finish the chorus, and then goes up to one, six, four, five again. Only this time, we're a whole step higher. If you leave, I won't cry. I won't waste one single day. But if you Same progression. So is it going to E for the chorus? My man. How do I know that? So it's extremely sophisticated writing by people that know how to write. I'm standing in my kitchen. I'm a 46-year-old man standing in my kitchen going, what the fuck? How many key signatures is this? Which never really occurred to me consciously listening back then. But now, if I was on a gig and somebody said, you you know, if you leave by OMD, I'd be like, yeah, all right. All right, then let me ask you this. Try walking a keyboard player through this song on a gig who's never heard it before. All right, and and conversely, (laughs) how would you feel if the Summer Wind and Mac the Knife were all in one key? (laughs) Think about it. It's it's indigenous to the songs. Right. And so is this. I mean, this is on that level, if not... More so. So then what happens now? But, but again, the, the second verse, if you leave, I won't cry. Going up a whole step, it just increases. If, I mean, because I don't know all the words, but the, the this is a guy begging his woman to stay with him, right? So the tension is now increased exactly. the second time yeah, around. Yeah, of course. It's so silly. very simple, subtle techniques to, to evoke 
the feeling of the song. Especially later on. I mean, I was already in my 30s in the 80s, but when I re-listen yeah. to some of these things, sometimes I have to learn them on gigs, but yeah. I couldn't stand some of these bands. But when I really listen <laughs> back to you ABC go, wow. yeah. and The Cult and all these this things, it's like, cool stuff damn, man, right. this is really, right. really good stuff, you know? Yeah. So there were a few songs on here listening through that, like, I kind of went, eh, but all in all, I felt like this was an album that is very much a, a time capsule. Uh, it, it captures a, a to young John of, of, or to old John. Um, both. I got, and that's say. what I'm implying about revisiting these things. You know, this For topic that reasons. we've selected. You know, you never forget why you first liked it, right? But now you've got more ammunition and ways to explain it, more libretto. You know what I mean? Thank you. Yes, exactly right. But what I did notice for the first time, paying attention, that there is a a, a yearning feeling in a lot of these songs. You know, to the point and yearning of, to get back to why you first, how you felt when you well, first heard that, it. Too. No, but I'm just talking. You're about, talking about the songs themselves. I'm talking about if you if you leave, I just want to get to know you, with Jesse Johnson. Uh, wouldn't it be good? Please, please, the Smiths, please, please, please yeah, let yeah, me yeah. get what I want. Well, you're also an adult that lived through these things. Right, right. And I'm, and I. So now you know what it is. And I'm, no, well, I'm just trying to figure out what it is that binds these songs together because I saw the movie probably 10 years later. And I got to say, I liked the soundtrack album more than the movie. Oh, I get that. And a lot of the songs are like barely noticeable in the movie. They're, they're playing in the background in, in a scene somewhere. If you leave is like it, it's is near the end and it's like edited within an inch of its life. All right, then let me let me uh, <laughs> let me yeah. run this past you then in terms of what you're talking about. If I'm if I'm gleaning correctly what you're saying, yeah, it's like you know the movie was marketed for the young John to watch and the music was incidental. Right. Okay. So right. now the uh, not so young John is completely enthralled with the music yes. because the music is more honest to you yes. than the actual film itself, which was designed for you, but didn't necessarily <laughs> reach you in particular. Okay. It may have reached a, a, a hundred thousand other people, yeah. but not you. So this is right. the part of the thing that cements it. Right. I just thought it was really interesting to go back and th- there was so much to think about. Again, medium is the message soundtrack albums versus mixtapes and, and and playlists yes um how different the industry was to get like all of these songs together all these different artists together and how all of them taken together present a unified feeling you know what i mean and and uh and to corroborate what you were talking about before soundtrack albums and compilations Remember when Hard Day's Night came out and George Martin's instrumental version right. of Hard Day's Night in three yeah. as a waltz was very much a part of all of it. With you the, weren't just you didn't just course. move the the, part of, you know, the whole part arm of the ahead to, to get to the next song. Whole part of the package, exactly. Exactly. All right. So what's your second one? Uh, my second one, which may be my first one, who the heck knows, is Axis Bold as Love by yep. Jimmy Hendrix. Know it well. When, how, what's your again what's your um, memory attached to this? Well, my memory attached to it was I first, when I was in high school, when I was in, I guess, middle school, it would be called. I was in the um, eighth grade, okay. I guess, and going into the ninth grade, my friend Richard Blau's father used to work for Reprise Records. Uh, and he gave me this record called Are You Experienced? Uh-huh. 
So I first became aware of Jimi Hendrix, as did everybody else, and listened to it. But for some reason, the follow-up record, Axis Bold as Love, which was out, by the way, not that long after. It was out mm. like within a year, maybe even months after right, that. Right, And it just hit me more. Yes. It just, it just affected me more. Me too. And it, I just wanted to know everything there was to know about it. I yep. mean, that's... I've, I've said that before. It's the album with Little Wing on Correct. It. It's got If Six Was Nine. Correct. Uh, it's got EXP. It's got Up From The Skies. It's Spanish got- Spanish Castle Magic. And, and, and uh, right, Castles Made of Sand. Yeah. Which, That's my favorite Hendrix album as well. By the way, Castles Made of Sand, a very respectable cover of it is by Tuck and Patty, by the way. Oh, I'd love to hear that. It's great. I saw but that. The re- but the tune on there that still affects me the most is Bold as Love, which is the last track. Yeah. 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 And um, again, you know, when I listen to it and I even talk about it, it's kind of like it brings me back to, I don't know, does it bring me back to then? Sure. Does it bring me back to five seconds ago when I listened to it? Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And and, and I'm I'm not even sure if the reasons are different. It's like one thing that's like great to that Eddie Kramer explains that it was the first stereo phasing of drums and, you know, all the YouTube videos that are available. But But that's not what it is. It's the explanation that comes across. Right. It's the explanations of the feelings to me. Yeah. I'm not sure rhetorically um, if that makes it better or worse for the audience. What do you guys think? Mm. To have things explained, or is it okay to just have the feeling? To go to the wait final- until tomorrow is another big to- tune from that yeah. record. Yeah, yeah. I could play it on guitar too. I was proud of myself. Yeah, um, but none of that pales to how I feel about the title cut. I think you're right about that, and and and, 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 and also the uh, album, right? And also, um, up from the skies. I smell of the world that is Maybe it's just a change of Up from the Skies also was covered by Sting and the Gil Evans Orchestra. In, in addition to his cover of Little Wing with the and Gil Evans And by me, group. going to open mics at like, you know, Birdland with the with What, the Little Wing? No, the other one. I would uh, uh, up from the skies. Yeah, I would go yeah. in there with all these theater and Broadway people, and yeah. I would go in there with my little acoustic bass guitar and hand you know my handwritten changes thing to yeah. Ted Firth, the fine piano player. There you go. And the, the, every, while everybody else is doing Sondheim and Peter Allen, I'm doing up from the skies. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it was hysterical. Well, there was a minute. And they're looking at me with complete indifference. It was amazing. Of course. Well, that's that's the hell with that. <laughs> um, there was a minute where everybody was covering little. <laughs> Derek and the Dominoes had the first cover I was right. aware of. No, but I mean, like in 1988, you know, Sting sits in with the Gil Evans Orchestra at Sweet Basil, and they do a little winging up from the skies. They record both of them. 
Up From the Skies is available somewhere on like a 12-inch or something. But Little Wing wound up on the Nothing Like the Sun album featuring uh, your friend Jeffrey Lee Campbell. Yes. Right? Who toured. By his book, Do Stand So Close. Yes. It's fantastic. Probably. I I remember seeing Sting at the Garden on that tour. And that was Delmar, Delmar, Smitty Smith, Tracy Wormworth, Kenny Kirkland. Yep, that was the band. And was and, it Omar? And no, no it wasn't Omar. No. Oh, oh, Smitty. oh, oh Smitty. Smitty. Sorry. Yeah, Omar was gone by that point. Right. Um, but I remember the guitar player crushing it on that solo on Little Wing because Hiram, be Bull- Je- Hiram Bullock did it on the record, and that would be Jeffrey doing it live. Right? It would have been Jeffrey exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, no pressure. Just like it's a Hendrix tune. A B Hiram did the solo on the record, so now here you are at the guy. And I thought, have you read the guy- book? No, not he yet. He describes what you're talking about okay. in detail. It's Good. fantastic. Like, no, like, and I, I'm even then on one. I was 16. Even then, I remember thinking like that guy's got brass balls <laughs> to step into that chair and pull it off. Yeah, I would. He was handsomely that. validated for that. He did a great job. Okay, I can't because of what you, especially because of what you said. I can't wait to talk to him about that. Yeah, Axis is my favorite record for Hendrix as well. The consistency. I got into, I got that album freshman year at Berkeley, so it was already like sort of classic rock by that time. But I remember being, you know, beyond the mythology of Jimi Hendrix at that point. I just remember like consistently track for track the songwriting and the production got me it's kind of like revolver with the, yeah with the and, and that's my favorite beetle record yeah and you want to hear something funny yeah. um and i just didn't think of i didn't think of this till just now is that we're only in it for the money and axis boulders love have some very interesting um similarities in okay. exp with you know when he starts talking about his childhood right. friend paul caruso and the tape sped up right so that his and voice the, sounds and different and, and all that and, stuff and, yeah you just can't you can leave everything you see here. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now right. Felix. I mean, but, it, but, it's but, like, but again, fans of the music of that era, you, you, you know, ah, it's tape manipulation. Like you're, we're, we're conditioned. Well, you knew what it was, but it was still it cool. Is. But it, of it, course. And, but what was also interesting to me was that when Electric Ladyland came out. Yeah. Um, and I bought it. I bought it at Barrow's Music in Great Neck. Nice. I did. I did not like it as much. Interesting. I'll, it's everybody else's favorite, not mine. I, I just ju- felt. I felt very. I was felt. I felt on edge about it. I felt that something was not right, and it was weird. The last time. The, the last time I had that particular feeling was when I saw Jaco Pastorius at Seventh Avenue South yeah. with Bob Mincer and Michael Brecker yep. and Don Elias yep. and Peter Erskine. And when Jaco walked out on stage, it's like something ain't right here. I know yep. this guy I hope this guy knows how to stay alive. Okay. And I remember the time I had that feeling before was when I heard Electric Ladyland. I just got Electric Ladyland for the first time. What do you think? Same thing. I was in we were in England. Really? We were in England on vacation. And I wandered into an HMV shop because uh, I was so pleased to see an HMV shop. And they were having like a two for 10 pounds sale. Uh, you know, everything in this bin is two for 10 pounds. And I was like, yeah, right on. So I saw the Liam Gallagher album. Damn. As okay. you were. It's, which is great. And there was a copy of Electric Ladyland. I'm like, you know what? I should own this freaking record already. It's the legendary... Electric Ladyland, 50th anniversary, blah, 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 the Hendrix, the double album. And I said, I am going to sit with this with my full attention with the headphones and take a journey on it. And I got to say, I was not 
like I get it. Like I get why people, why this album is so revered for being what it is. But track for track, it, it just sounded kind of unfocused. Well, there's a, it was unfocused. The experience was in the process of already right. There's having a, and, and di- there's having a live track, and there's just like, hey, let's keep panning the drums back and forth. I'm like, all right. Well, you know, what I mean? you know, but that was going on on Axis too. A lot of right, drum panning and everything, the but the songs weren't strong. Right. But the there was a lot of sitting in. It was everybody from Dave Mason to Chris Wood. Right. You know, uh, and uh, Jack Cassidy. Right. I mean, all kinds of people it, were on it, this it record. Feels Buddy Miles. Like, it feels like a hodgepodge. Right. Like I always say about with the Beatles, as crazy as they ever got, everything had to get past George Martin. Right. Someone had to have final say over what the the, the funnel was really narrow, right? But moving you back know? to Axis for a second, okay, please. It's um, it's it's sort of interesting to note that at that time, Jimi Hendrix himself was reputed to be have played many of the bass lines, right, on that record, right. And I've been really, really interested in have used the eight string bass for a long time, and yes. the first recording I'm aware of is him is either Hendrix, I think it's Hendrix and not Noel Redding, mm-hmm. playing that eight-string bass stuff on You Got Me Floating. Okay. You know, playing the solo on it and everything. Interesting. So... Yeah, well, there's a focus to, to that record, to Axis, that's, um, you know, like they really sound like they're getting down into, you know, one song after the next, just bang, 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 bang. And the One of my favorite records of all time and still is. Yeah. Next. Okay. Um, Michael Penn. His debut album, March. Wow. Okay, so now we're a couple of years later. This is 1989. This record came out. I got it in April of 1990. My girlfriend at the time, my girlfriend's senior year of high school, gave it to me for my birthday. No Myth, which is the opening track on March, was the single at the time. And it's a great piece of like... I mean, right away, you're hooked. You know, so she says it's time she goes. Wanted to be sure I know. Hope we can be friends. Okay. So in the great tradition of like having the single open the album, like right away, you're hooked in there. And the songwriting here, I mean, straight out of the Beatles 65, 66 playbook. Um, it's pretty good influence. It's the same. Yeah. This, these are the ideals that... Uh, that Tom Petty holds up, you know. Um, I don't know how else to describe it other than everything that happens in the song. I mean, there's there's a production element to it also. I, I realized this listening again last night. Everything that happens in the song is a melody. A lot of melodic bass lines that stand on their own, and then a, then a solo that comes in, and then a lead line that accentuates something. The drum part, boom, ga, doom. I mean, everything is its own little thing. So Miriam got it for me for my birthday. This is back when CDs still came in long boxes. Yes, yes, yes. You know what I mean? And this is the copy that I still own. So we're we're 20-something years ago. That's great. Took it at face value. Very Beatle-influenced, okay, fine, whatever. 
but wasn't thinking in terms of like the production or this or that. I just heard this album and dug it. All kinds of sense memories of senior year of high school, freshman year of college attached to it. I remember going to PC Richard on Flatlands Avenue, Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn and getting my first boom box, my stereo system for my dorm. It was a big JVC like boom box where the speakers were detachable. Yep, yep, yep. And it had a CD player on the top, dual cassette. And I, and that was my first CD player. And I had all my CDs in a shoebox. That's how few And did CDs you record cassettes from your CD because you could? So And the pause button was really, you could make really smooth edits with this one. Yes. It was like a semi-crossfade almost. And this was one, there were a handful of CDs that I had that I took with me to Berkeley. And this was one of them. And so all those wonderful memories of this album, fine. Okay, as an adult, is this album any good? Like you said about we're only in it for the money, it's better. I listened from beginning I, love that. I listened from beginning to end with headphones last night and was like, holy crap, this is incredible songwriting. I, I love that. I couldn't believe it. Um you've got Jim Keltner on here. You've got John Pierce on bass. Yep. You've got Jimmy Haslip playing bass on a track. Uh, But you've got got killer songs. You've got killer songs, yes. It's great to have all these people on there, but you know what? In the spirit of- Larry Klein. Right. Yeah, the former husband of Joni Mitchell, great bass player. Kenny Aronoff. Okay. There's one, the the closing track, Even Fall, Keltner and Aronoff together. Hard pan. Again, you know, in the spirit of Tin Pan Alley, the song is the song is the song is the song. And when you bring in this kind of band, you know, these musicians, they all know that when they walk in. So if one guy was playing it at an open mic or if these guys were all playing it, the song is the song is still going to be great. That's exactly right. And that's what that was what was going through my head going like my Keltner was playing the shit out of this. That's right. Everything that happens on this record happens for a reason. Every part, every line, the song, it, it's 100% primo, direct out of the Beatles playbook song craft. But you know what? As far as Michael Penn is concerned, I want to weigh in on what we were talking about before we pressed yeah. the record today. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies, and now one of my favorite scores, yeah. is Boogie Nights okay. from 1997, music by Michael Penn. I'm going to have to and check this out. And when I listened to it the first time, I didn't get that it was as great after having listened to it again because I've watched Boogie Nights a billion times. And every time I watch it, I hear something that Michael Penn did that is so cool yeah. as far as writing and the way that the music is recorded and executed that it is indelibly etched in my mind. All right, every I'm going to have to note that he ever wrote that, on the I, record. I sadly I can't, did not. I can't recommend it enough. Okay. Well, and, in other words, again, it's like when you're talking about, well, straight out of the Beatles 65, blah, 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 blah. And I had referenced before in a previous podcast, you never know what a guy's full capabilities are, even if you hear one of his, right. your favorite records by right. him. So this guy's a film composer that no one writes like. That doesn't He's surprise brilliant. me because, you know, again, listening to this stuff again with fresh ears even the stuff that's like a little weird uh he had a collaborator named patrick warren who was a keyboard player 
And there's a few odd sounding things that he does on here. The third song on the album is a song called This and That. There's like little kind of weird sounding things every once in a while. There's a track on here called Bedlam Boys. It's got Wendy and Lisa on it. Um, They they do some incredible stuff on here. The guitar work and the keyboard stuff. But that Bedlam Boys opens with an instrumental, a short instrumental called Disney's A Snow Cone. Uh, it's, a, it's like a weird sort of like s- synthesized brass. So I guess what I'm saying is all the weirdness that happens, it's not self-conscious. It's, it, it just serves gives the music a a, a character. Right. And that's the big difference of what you're talking about. When you have music that's made by these kind of people, they're not making it for themselves and they're not making it as vehicles for narcissism. That's right. Thank you. And and instrumental narcissism. Nailed it, Jeff. Thank you. That's right. Well, you nailed it by picking these people. Right. but (laughs) But you articulated what I was trying to articulate. And I was just so pleased by the end of the record that it had held up to... The scrutiny, this memory of like the girlfriend, senior year of high school, my first boombox, taking it all in just like as back, you know, sort of background. I mean, I knew the songs. Well, you know what? If you're lucky, greatness always holds up. You know what I mean? I think that's where we got to wrap it up. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's it. <laughs> Done. Do your favorites from yesterday hold up to you today? Drop us a line at breakingitdown at culturesonar.com and join the conversation. We just might read your email on a future episode. And if you enjoy the show, please tell a friend, spread the word on your social media and in real life. If you like this podcast, you'll really love Culture Sonar. It's a place where folks like us gather to discuss and learn more about the music films, books, and events we love. Plus, you can find lots of cool stuff at our store, shop.culturesonar.com. Like the hugely entertaining and educational Deconstructing the Beatles film series. Right now, you can save 10% on everything in the store by using the discount code BREAKINGITDOWN. When you shop with us, you help to support the 60 or so writers, producers, and editors that make this all happen. So visit shop.culturesonar.com and check it out. Mm-hmm.